real, real conversation, conversation and some hard truths. Hard truths. Gangs, Gangs, drugs, drugs and, guns. and guns. Giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Hey everybody, welcome back. Nathan Rome is with you. Today we're going to be talking about police, protests, society. And for that, I have Dr. Laura Huey on the program. Laura is a professor of sociology at the University of Western Ontario. She's also the editor of Police Practice and Research, an international journal. She's a member of the College of New Scholars, Artists, and Scientists of the Royal Society of Canada. That's quite the mouthful. And uh, recently, she founded an international working group on police and crime data and co-runs uh, hashtag CrimCom, that's C-O-M-M, CrimCom, a global network promoting knowledge mobilization. Formerly, she was the director of the Canadian Society of Evidence-Based Policing and a senior research fellow with the U.S. National Police Foundation. So I think we're going to have a good discussion here about uh, police, data, maybe some truth, not necessarily what people see in the media. So welcome, Laura. Thank you for having me. And I had to laugh. I was thinking about it this morning when I was making coffee. I'm on a podcast called The Quiet Professional. And I'm neither quiet nor particularly professional. <laughs> well, I'm, I guess for the listeners, before I fired this up here, uh, I said, you're okay to swear on here. So <laughs> if they go look at your posts and stuff, I think they'll appreciate your candor. <laughs> yeah, well, I have to laugh because I went the one, one time I, I, I'm not super politically correct. And I really am not a big fan of any politician. And a politician had a really stupid crime idea. And I'm like, Fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> there's, yeah. There's, sometimes there's just no other response that's suitable. Yeah. And I got taken to task by a former chief who was like, Dr. Huey, that is not professional. So I messaged, I tweeted him back and I said, guess three guesses what my response is to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <I blocked. laughs> Well, I guess there's a place in time, right? For everything. So you can be professional to a certain point. And then sometimes people just need to hear the truth. So, absolutely, one hundred percent. And um, life is too short for nonsense. And so, as you're more than well aware, policing and academia are both full of a ton of BS. So, <laughs> yes. if we want to improve either one, we got to cut through that nonsense to get to what's real. Yeah. Well, and so your would you is it accurate to describe you as a sociologist? Is that no. the proper term? No? Okay. I was going to say, you're the first sociologist I've had on here. Um, and most people you hear of nowadays are psychologists. So, yeah. you know, maybe we'll kind of start there, but why, why sociology? Why a professor of that and not psychology? Well, that's where I got a job. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, no, so what happened was, I'm actually, I consider myself a criminologist who happens to be in a sociology department. Okay. Um, my background, I actually did my undergraduate honors degree in crim at Simon Fraser. And um, I had a choice to make. Do I stay at Simon Fraser? Do I go somewhere else? And um, at the time, one of the, one of the like, biggest thinkers around policing was, was a man named Richard Erickson who was at UBC. And even though UBC had nothing there other than Richard, I ended up going there 
and doing my master's and my PhD with him. And it was, which was ended up being a fantastic decision because he was an excellent supervisor and mentor. But it saddled me with this sociology degree. And I have to tell you, um, the first class I ever took as an undergraduate, uh, one of my professors was doing a Marxist seminar on rural agrarian farming in Saskatchewan. Okay. With his and I'm, I, being the keener I am, I would always sit in the front row. So I'm literally sitting there like, God, can't somebody tell this guy he's flies open? Like, I can't even <laughs> list this. So the, I ended up in so is some, some somewhat ironic. Let's just put it that way. Mm, okay. Well, you know what? Maybe we'll go back a bit further. And if you could tell us kind of about you uh, and growing up and how you got into this field and uh, became who you are today? Well, I think I'm a, part of the reason why you don't probably typically have too many sociologists on um, is that they tend to come from upper middle-class backgrounds. I did not. So my parents would have been your clients, Nathan. <laughs> like, okay. I, yeah. Yeah. Um, so my, I grew up in, um, I grew up in a household with a lot of addiction, violence, all that kind of stuff. And, um, I ended up going, uh, being taken out of my home when I was, I know this is like total sob story here, but when I was 13, I ended up being removed by social services and being put into foster care, which was actually being saddled with, um, they're saddling me with, uh, on my, on my aunt. Cause uh, you know, back then they used to do that a lot, put you with family. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I ended up moving out when I was 17 and just like, um, trying to be, it was funny because I, I'm, I consider myself the white sheep of the black sheep family. Yeah. I guess that's a way to put it. My idea. Yeah. My idea of rebellion was to go straight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because you're, you're, I don't know if you, call it this but um almost a a product of the system to some point and yet now you're uh putting out data that kind of is against the narrative which is against police so you're not saying you're for police but it's it's uh definitely data that helps us in some ways because it explains some of the truth out there which is is very interesting a different dynamic well this is the thing so i'm actually for police Mm-hmm. Um, I have no problem saying that. I actually see um, public policing as a public good, security as a public good. And the reason why I have that perspective is because I have watched, I've watched horrific scenes of violence. And when you don't have security, when you do not have freedom from violence or from the fear of violence, then it's like, that's a terrible state of existence. And having lived that, I like the idea that um, if somebody was to break into my house right now, I don't need to rely on myself. I can dial 911 and I can tell you that my friends at the London Police Service are going to show up. Yeah. Um, And to have that security helps me achieve everything that I I can achieve as as a human being sorry to be all philosophical about this but no it's good this is how i see public policing and this is why i'm for public policing but i'm also for making it the best that it can possibly be not just for for the public but also for the people that do the job yeah so were you as you're growing up you 
basically just see kind of all the chaos around you. And from there, you're just thinking, hey, I'm going to do better. I'm going to be better. So you take it upon yourself. 100%. So when I was, um, I, and, it, and these things are always like, not always so clear cut, but when I, I had a, I had a drug and alcohol addiction when I was in my early twenties, just because, um, the P, the, the chronic PTSD I have from childhood was never treated. And so you don't know that you, you just know that you're different, but you don't understand why. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners who have PTSD will understand this feeling, right? You think that there's something wrong with you and that um, you do anything to dull the pain and mask the symptoms. And so uh, when I was 25, I stopped drinking. I went to my first AA and I didn't, you know, I'm not a very good follower of anything. So after I got sober, I did AA, sorry, AA, but (laughs) (laughs) I've now been sober for 31 years. Wow. And yeah, but again, what I learned was what I call the piggy bank model. Um, And this is how I think we need to start thinking about addiction. The piggy bank model is when you, um, you ever have, when you're a kid, did you ever have a piggy bank, Nathan? Yeah. And so when it didn't have very many coins in it, we're more inclined to kind of smash it, right? Mm. Because it's super valuable. It's like, oh, you know, I need 50 cents. I'll take it out. But the weird thing with human beings is the more full that damn piggy bank gets, the less inclined you are to smash it because you value it more. Yeah. Okay. I see that. And this is kind of how I think in terms of addiction and change. Once you are in the early stages of addiction, when it's so easy to go back, and you don't have as much invested in other aspects of your life. That's where the problems come. Once you start to invest in your life, and in my case, it was education and going back to school at 27. I went and got my undergraduate degree. I started at 27. Once I started doing that and becoming and seeing the rewards from that, the less inclined I was to want to go back and use. Okay. Can you talk a bit about the addictions? Are you okay talking about that now? Is Absolutely. I'm just wondering, you know, what is it like? Because in your 20s, you're a young adult. Um, you know, you're legal now, you can make all these decisions on your own. Uh, what kind of got you out of that stage of your life to take responsibility for yourself? And the reason I ask that is because I've said this on a few other podcasts, no matter who I talk to, where they're from in the world, uh, I had uh, Fidel Wusu on here from Ghana. And then I was talking to some other people that are from, you know, the US, right across the map. It's all about uh, taking responsibility, agency of your own life. So what, what kind of drove you into doing that? Cause I, I imagine that'd be kind of hard when you're in your twenties, you know, it's party time, especially in your early twenties, um, when you can recover from all the hangovers and different things, but you know, what is it that drove you specifically to make that change? Um, well, so when I quit drinking was in the early 1990s. And this is before they invented all those great sounding drinks like Cosmopolitans. And the, mm. you know, we just had Long Island iced tea back in the day. Um, so, <laughs> which is, you can imagine, you know, I don't know if you ever had one, but that's a hangover causer. Yeah. Um, but what, what caused me um, was that I was basically, I had seen with my own eyes what, it, what the effects of addiction are. 
And I knew that I had lost complete, I could not drink like a normal person. And I was having situations that were embarrassing to me. And, you know, go to a work function and get completely blotto and sing karaoke and all the rest of it. But not sing karaoke at a karaoke thing, just sing karaoke. I mean, it was, it was ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I didn't, I didn't, uh, I didn't want to end up like that. And um, I chose to, like I said, I chose to rebel against that. And just so you have some context. So my, my natural mother, who I don't know if she's alive or not, um, was have, so heavily into addiction. The last time I heard anything of her, she was, she was dumpster diving. Oh, okay. And who, I, yeah. So here's the thing. Who wants to be a 50, 60, 70 year old woman? And you're surviving by crawling through garbage bins. Yeah. This is not life for anybody. And um, I thought, you know what? You, you can absolutely do better than that. And so I, I had tried to quit uh, once before and it didn't take. But the second time around, I was like, if I don't do this, I'm going to die. And I had episodes where, you know, uh, just disgusting episodes where I'm surprised I'm still alive. Um, so that, that all kind of motivated me. But like I said, you can't just give something up. You have to replace it with something else. And so what I did was found a passion. And my passion was uh, academia. Okay. So uh, do you know where your father is? Do you know where any other family members are? Yeah, my father died a few years ago. And the only reason I know is I got a letter from a lawyer. Um, my brother, my younger brother died. He, um, he, uh, he was a boating accident, cocaine and alcohol. Um, and he went, he fell over the side of a boat in the Fraser river. And so, wow. and then that was just, it, and as far as I, I, I believe that my mother, my, my, I believe that my mother's probably dead. Um, so it's just me now. Okay. And, um, so I know you weren't expecting <laughs> you weren't expecting this, right? It's 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 most people um, criminologists all come to come to their disciplines from different perspectives. Some people because mm -hmm. they're fascinated with the criminal mind, which is you know the criminal mind is typically about three brain cells, um, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, there's not no Pierce Brosnan is not doing bank heists in London, Ontario. Let's put it that way. Um, yeah. So my my interest in criminology comes from that background, from observing, seeing like the stuff that I saw and experiencing the things that I've experienced. What I'm able to do, because I grew up the way I did, I thought you can call it street or whatever. Um, but because I grew up that way, it gave me an advantage in two areas of my life, and, and those two areas relate to my interests victimology so i work with or have worked um extensively with primarily homeless women who've been victims okay so getting them to tell their stories and then i to be honest i burned out on that and it brought my ptsd back after x number of years of doing it so i switched back to doing full-time working with police and you think you guys would trigger the hell out of my ptsd but so far good <laughs> We just complain for different reasons, I guess. But the but growing up the way I did, 
it's easy for me to relate to, I, I always say this, I love street cops. I'm, I'm very biased in, in my police um, thing. And I love street cops. I love street cops because they cut through the bullshit. Um, they're cynical. They have fantastic senses of humor because you need one to survive. Mm-hmm. And so I, it's like I found my people. Yeah. <laughs> well, at any point, did you uh, were you ever homeless, or did you always have a place to stay? Um, I I was homeless in the sense of like having couch surfing. I'd couch yeah. surf between, but between seventeen and nineteen. I did a fair amount of couch surfing. Um, I was lucky that I was able to through friends get jobs and stuff and be able to get up on my feet that way. But when you finally get established and you have things like your own furniture, um, again, when you, when the addiction threatens that, that's when you start to think, you know, I really don't want to go back to sleeping on other people's couches when I have one of my own. And again, that was a real motivator. Yeah. Well, and I I like the part that you brought up there about, uh, talking to the the homeless women that you said it kind of started bringing back PTSD things for you. Uh, I always wondered that about people who work in the shelters here, how much of a, uh, a lifespan you can have doing that specific function. Um, just seeing the same things day in and day out, hearing the same things all the time, you know, you're dealing with like the same group of people. Like it's not, I don't imagine it's a population that fluctuates a whole lot. People don't transition from homeless to not homeless overnight. Uh, so yeah, I just kind of wonder like what the shelf life is of a, a job like that, because I feel like you'd get burned out real fast. And sometimes you honestly, you, you go in with good intentions and maybe a month or two, or maybe you make it a year, you start kind of, I don't want to say hating the people you're dealing with, but yeah, you find it definitely difficult to deal with them anymore. 100%. So one of the things that always makes me laugh is because I've seen the system from the inside and the outside. Um, these people that seem to think that there, there's a flock of social workers out there, they're going to fix all sorts of social ills. Um, most people that I'm aware of that have gone, and, and ironically enough, one of my early jobs when I was in undergrad was uh, I worked for social services at, in BC. So I was like the girl at the desk hand out the welfare checks that was one of my jobs okay. so i when i say when i say i've seen it from the inside out i'm not kidding um what most people don't understand is first of all yeah maybe there are social workers that go in and they have this attitude of wanting to change things but trust and believe that most of the ones that i've encountered in my life um have not only burned out but or have prevented burnout by just not caring yeah like you just thought you just basically you don't care. You don't put the effort in anymore, right? No, it's it's a job. I'm just here to just process my files and keep it moving. And I understand that as like a defense mechanism. However, it's horrible and demeaning for the people that you're dealing with. Hmm. Remember one guy when I was working in North Van at the social services office, he had to pick up his check in North Van. But he was he was homeless in Vancouver and he had no shoes. And he had to walk from Vancouver over uh, the first Narrows Bridge to get to Lionsgate to get to uh, the office to pick up his check. And um, he asked if he could have some kind of bus or cab fare to get back. And she was like, "Yeah, no, you got your check. Get out of here." 
Oh, wow. And I'm like, it's a dehumanizing system for a lot of people. And so this is why I'm super skeptical about anything where they're like, oh, just throw social workers at it. It'll fix it. Mm, most of them don't want to do the shit that you guys deal with. They don't even want to do the shit that they deal with. Yeah. So when I want to say this was when I had uh, our chief of police on um, recently. We were talking about uh, basically... I find that some of these services are the first people to say no to helping uh, the people that they are specifically there to help, or they're the first ones to ban them from somewhere, or you know, just basically uh, back out of helping them. So they go in with all the good intentions. One bad thing happens; they're like, "Get this person out of here." It's like if I said that as a police officer. I'd have complaints coming at me and then it'd be all a human rights complaint. And it's like, well, you guys are the quickest to, you know, turn your back on the people that you're saying you're going to help. I just find that kind of fascinating. So um, one thing I wanted to get into here was uh, just a bit about your work that you've done. So you did your undergrad, you got your master's at UBC. Mm-hmm. Um, so throughout your education, What's kind of driven you into the criminology world? Is it just think like were you thinking that at the beginning of all of it, saying, "Hey, you know what? I, it's interesting," or is there a specific person that kind of pushed you that way? No. So what happened was I did my undergrad in criminology pre-law. Yes, I admit that. <laughs> Thank God I didn't go into a career as a lawyer. I would have sucked. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I wanted to be, I wanted to actually go into constitutional law. And um, what happened is I cannot do, like my, my idea of logic and the LSAT logic are two totally different things. There's no way, every pretest for the LSAT, I bombed. Oh, really? But I did really criminology. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I had the opportunity to um, do the honors degree, which at Simon Fraser, they would invite you to do it. You couldn't just apply. And I liked doing research so much. And actually my undergraduate um, thesis was on women that get involved with guys that they know are like serial killers. Oh, really? (laughs) I'm like, what is causing, like, why would you want to do that? And they're not, there's not too many attractive serial killers, let's be honest. So what is the deal? Um, and I realized I loved research so much that I just wanted to keep doing it. And um, yeah. And so today, when you some researchers will do the same topic for 30 years, you'll see that I do tons of different topics because I'm always like, oh, why do people do that? Why do they want to do that? Yeah. You've been involved in, uh, I had a list here. I think it's, you've done some stuff on terrorism, yeah. interpersonal violence, cybercrime. Yeah. You're kind of all over the place. Just anything that looks interesting. One hundred percent. And so um, one of the, just to give you an example, yesterday I was on the phone um, wrangling a project to do with violence against police, which I meant I mentioned to you before we started. Yes. Um, I'm always I see. So what happens is on my Twitter feed, I see pictures of police officers in the UK. What they'll often do is um, they won't just report that a police officer was assaulted. They'll actually take a photo so you can see the damage that was done. Okay. Because when we say that a police officer was assaulted, what does that mean? Yeah. And it's a little bit different when you can actually see, like I've seen pictures of people where their eye looks like it's going to come out, right? Mm -hmm. And 
Um, it made me start thinking about like, how do we start recognizing and um, quantifying and qualifying like what is violence against police? Because the thing is, um, even if you're the hardest core cop hater, you're paying for that person to be off work because they're not well and they might end up having PTSD or other operational stress injuries as a result. Your call cue is like, you know, the more officers that are off because of, you know, being victims of assaults and so on, and um, your call cues go up. Like, there's all sorts of ramifications to this. And I, I think most people, including policymakers, have no freaking idea. Yeah, I think that's definitely a piece of the, the story that's missing. Um, we've had a few incidents that have, you know, been a part of where property's been damaged. Like, uh, we had something recently we were at and um, one of the police had a big telescopic lens on their camera. I mean, the thing's probably worth a few thousand dollars and it got damaged uh, by somebody. And I'm just thinking like uh, this criminal, I'll say, <laughs> he's got a, he owns an actual business too, a legit one on the side of all the things he does. So I was like, well, well, there goes more of your tax dollars to paying for that. As much as you complain about us being here and a waste of your tax dollars, you are damaging property. And now that's coming back around. You're paying for that. So, but you even hear that with people always say, I pay your salary, that whole argument. And I just think like, well, I make a lot of money in a year. I work a lot of overtime. I pay a ton of taxes. I'm pretty sure I pay more taxes than that person that I'm dealing with. But um, I kind of pay my own salary. It's almost cyclical in a weird way. <laughs> Same thing with academia, like, like university professors that say, oh, I pay your salary. I'm like, honey, you don't pay enough for the lights in this building. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, let's be real. This is all subsidized. The other thing that's funny about the, and not funny, not funny about what you're saying about the damage to the property. I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but most police officers would rather take a punch then have to deal with the 85 million forms that are going to have to be filled out because of that telescopic lens got damaged. Yeah. Yeah. That is a fact. If we get assaulted, it's pretty quick. <laughs> you just, you know, you're putting the person in jail and you do a couple clicks here and there and fill out your form. Um, when property's damaged and now the service has to uh, hand out money. Oh yeah. That's like forms multiple bosses have to sign off on us. You got to explain the story 30 times. Yeah. <laughs> the whole process. One of the weird things that I'm always fascinated with is the stuff that um, other uh, uh, criminologists would consider mundane, like police paperwork. So, you know, it's because I, I am actually what's called an ethnographer. I'm somebody that actually observes and watches what you guys do. And that's how I learn. And so one night um, there was... And sometimes I, I, even when I'm not on, so one night there was like flashing lights outside my bedroom window. I'm like, oh, what's going on? And I look out and um, there's uh, two patrol cars and a sergeant out there. And um, there's a guy who's like, you know, on the hood of the car and they're patting him down and pulling stuff out and whatever. So he gets arrested and the whole time he is just like Foul mouth yeah. to these police officers. Like, you know, you're, you're this and you can do with your head that and whatever, right? And they're like, mm, yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. 
And then they put him in the back of, the, of a car because I guess um, for whatever reason, I guess the old uh, the old uh, transport vehicle wasn't available. He starts trying to kick out the back window. That's when the cop got mad. Yeah. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, don't you with my window. Like, you can call him and his mother and his kid, whatever you want. But if he's got to fill out forms because of that back window, man, he's going to be mad. I think the other thing too is that if you're kind of inclined to be more on the street is that just takes away from time from you being out there. Now you're inside filling out 600 pages of paperwork that takes an hour. And then whoever you give it to doesn't like that you missed a period here or a comma there. So now they send it back to you and there, now you're going to spend more time. And it's, it's just, uh, yeah, street cops definitely hate paperwork. <laughs> and so um, I sat in a, a RCMP detachment for an entire week watching, because I, I wasn't allowed to go in the cars because RCMP policy. So they sat me in the detachment office. So I had a desk with everybody else and watched them go, take phone calls and go out on calls. And then I'd have to, you know, then I'd have to ask, so what did you do? Blah, blah, blah. And um, this one police officer who I was sitting with on Monday, he had 17 motor vehicle, sorry, he had 16 motor vehicle incident reports he had to do because in Newfoundland, you have to, uh, they, they do them mm-hmm. and for anything over 2000. So somebody comes to the detachment complains, you fill out the, so 16, he was told by his detachment supervisor, you have to spend as much time here and get this number down by the end of the week. By the end of the week, he had 17. Is <laughs> that many coming in? No, well, because they're coming in, but also we counted something like 22 or 23 different forms that he might potentially have to fill out in relation to the motor vehicle stuff. Okay, yeah. They, they, so you used to have to fill out a form. Uh, it was called a TSS in Alberta. And same thing, there was a dollar limit. I think it's up to 5000 now. But the uh, they there used to be a whole bunch of forms. And you have your tow forms and all these other things. They've moved some things online where you can just you know punch in a license plate and it populates what you need. Some of it's good. Some of it, it it's still a work in process, a progress. But yeah, there's definitely... Um, need to get away from like so much paper. But I think that's, and and this is kind of one of the questions that I I don't know if I've ever found an answer to yet, but I don't, and someone corrected me on this part where I said the system was weaponized against uh, civilians, but it's, I would almost say it's, uh, it's completely bogged down by the criminals and their lawyers who've made it this insanely complex web of uh, just, forms and accountability so you can have great accountability and great oversight without spending um you know an entire shift just doing paperwork and reports the 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 thing that i see though is like especially when you get to court there's just well why didn't you fill out this form oh you missed this one checkbox in the 30 forms you're doing we're throwing this all out so this and i in a dozen years of policing I've never seen a truly just random innocent person getting screwed over by the man. And I've only dealt with criminals in the criminal system. So I I feel like they're winning to an extent. So between the paperwork and just how uh, insane it can be when you have to fill all this stuff out and and the level of scrutiny that there is, 
I don't think it's, um, I don't think it's helping society. No, in fact, that's only part of it too. So we did, so I've actually done a ton of research on police paperwork, which I, I honestly think I should get a Nobel prize for this because it's like, <laughs> you guys hate paperwork. I hate paperwork. Um, but what we discovered is that that's, well, that that's a component of it. A lot of um, police services fill out paperwork for other institutions. Yeah, there is that. So, right. BC, you're filling stuff out for ICBC. Um, you're filling stuff out for the Ministry of Transportation. One of the funny things about the, the motor vehicle reports in Newfoundland is that it was redesigned by the trans, um, Ministry of Transportation who wanted the data, but nobody knew what the hell they wanted the data for. One of the questions was, what is the PSI in each of the tires? Oh. What cop is getting down on his, <laughs> his or her knees to like figure this out, right? Yeah, we collect a lot of information. We ask you to collect a lot of information. It's actually completely useless. And so the other side of my work is working with police data and the horrible state that it's in. And it's in that horrible state because we have cops that, you know, a week later can't get their 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 report queue down. Yeah, they're just mm-hmm. filling it up as quickly as possible. Well, and you know what? Talking about um, data, I don't think people people probably tuned in. They probably like. Wow, we're talking about paperwork, but it's actually an interesting conversation. <laughs> um, just talking about that, maybe I'll start with the mental health side of the system. So in Alberta, Mental Health Act says essentially like a peace officer, the police will uh, convey a person to whatever facility they got to take them to. And then here you go. That's it. Like this is your responsibility now. And it's been a fight for years and I'm pretty sure it just comes down to funding. Um, but yeah, we sit there for hours and some parts of the process have gotten better, a little shorter in some ways, but you can end up sitting there for, you know, like an entire shift sometimes, uh, waiting for the hospital to take, uh, custody or care of this body that you have. So there, there's a lot of issues when it comes to filling out the paperwork for other agencies and then just doing other agencies jobs after 4 PM. Uh, it's pretty much only police out there doing a lot of stuff. We have very slim uh, options to pick from when it comes to, you know, getting people services that they need. Uh, and even then the, the people work and the, they can say no. <laughs> and they'll be the, like I was saying earlier, they'll be the first ones to say no to something. And you're like, well, what do I do with this person now? There's basically, basically only a jail cell for them to sleep in. So I, uh, so Way, way back when I was a little PhD student, one of my first, uh, so when I was actually doing, uh, my my PhD was on skid row policing. So I started out, my master's was in the downtown east side, my PhD was in the downtown east side of Vancouver, and then as well, the Tenderloin of San Francisco and um, the Cowgate Grass Market area of Edinburgh. And because uh, I'm always fascinated, like that's the real critical edge of policing is working in like the worst districts with the worst resources and trying to like hold things together with shoestringing gum. And um, basically that's, that's what you see is I remember um, being in car 87, which or no, sorry, one car is mental health. One car was for youth. And I interviewed the guys that were doing the youth. They were telling me a story about uh, 
a girl that they had picked up on a kitty stroll in, in the downtown east side. She had just been out. She'd only been out there for an hour. It was her first, like basically, you know, mom sold her off and um, the guy put her out on the street. And they were fortunate. They had just grabbed her before she'd done anything. They called after hours uh, in North Van and they were going to take her over there. So they went and took her to, to after hours. Um, which is for, for those of you that don't know, social services is supposedly runs after hours programs. And um, they couldn't find, I guess they couldn't find a bed for this kid. So they gave her cab fare and she took the cab back to the downtown east side to go to go turn a trick because that was basically the only other option. So these cops found her there again a couple hours later. Now, what the hell are oh. they supposed to do with that? Yeah. Yeah. There's nowhere to take these people. No. And so this was one of the many reasons why I got interested in looking at the experiences of women and how do we provide better security options for them? And um, how do we do things like get women to report victimization to the police in ways that are safe for them? And um, how do we also try to help resource police officers? But there's a certain level of just like the system is just dysfunctional. The fact that we have police officers sitting in ER rooms because um, legal, legally, and I'm doing the air quotes, yeah, um, you guys can just hand them off. Or I think that's starting to change in Alberta, but in other provinces, you can't just hand, hand them off. Um, the other thing, too, is quite often you'll drop them off and even and you'll see them like 40 minutes later down the road because the hospital was like, no, nah, you're fine. Get out of here. Yeah. I've talked to women who have tried to kill themselves and had their stomach pumped and weren't held for mental health reasons. Yeah. That's crazy. The system is being broken. Yeah, that's uh, that's both on the criminal side and the mental health side. Half the people will be out before I'm done my shift. So, uh, one of the things I wanted to uh, kind of get into was talking about the public order policing. So talking about the protests and riots, because you've done a bunch of work in this area. Uh, this stuff is fascinating to me. Uh, I was in Ottawa, I was deployed there. Um, so I just kind of want to get your view on some of the stuff you've seen through your studies, because you focus more on the impacts that uh, on the police. So what is, uh, you know, what have you kind of seen throughout all of this craziness? Because <laughs> we've had the convoys, we've had BLM, uh, BLM's extension, George Floyd. So, you know, what are the impacts you're seeing on police and is it still affecting them today? So, um, as always, as we, we've kind of established, I'm like a mental butter, like gadfly. Like if something um, intrigues me, then I want to know more about it. So a friend of mine was deployed to Ottawa and um, I posted something on Twitter about some ridiculous thing that was in the media and he messaged me privately and said, I'm on the ground here. I can actually see what's going on. And it's nothing like what's being reported. So I was like, really? That's interesting. So I want to know more. And what I did was I started an oral history project. So far, there have been about 65 people that have been interviewed who had, and by people, I mean police officers and police personnel and maybe I think one politician. Um, but the idea behind the project was to try to reflect the police perspective of what was happening on the ground, which was very different um, from what we heard in the media. And a 
the project then expanded to look at what was going on with the officers in Alberta, because you guys were sort of like the, uh, you were sort of like a lot of the kooky stuff that we saw in places like Ottawa, Victoria, and wherever was kind of homegrown to Alberta. Like you yeah. guys have been dealing with this a lot longer than anybody else. And what I, aside from the oral history project, I started to look at the harms and the impacts of those harms. We're not talking enough about the threat of right-wing extremist violence against police. Mm. Not just violence, but other harms as well. I'm just wrapping up a paper right now. I've actually written about five or six papers out of this project about harms against police. So one of them, doxing. Okay. We've had experience. We've had, so for those of you that don't know, doxing is the release of personal information about a police officer online, usually centered around um, exhortations to like harass them. A good example of that happened in Vancouver, uh, maybe about, I want to say a couple months ago, uh, there was a Grandview protest involving trans rights, uh, anti-trans protesters showed up, there was a melee, but of course the, the, the anti-trans protester brought a group with cameras. So of course they like to go up and they like to film police officers. I call it, it's called cop baiting and it's another harm. They'll go up, ask questions that will then be um, edited to fit whatever narrative that they've got going. Well, one of the police officers, clearly a young inexperienced female was, had this kind of goofy smile on her face. And when they went, of course, zeroed in on that, went up and started asking her questions. She's getting more nervous. She's smiling more goofily and not giving very coherent answers. Well, what ended up happening is within the space of a couple of hours of that being posted, they had her name, her Facebook, her Twitter accounts. They knew where she went to school. They were basically uh, encouraging people to not only file professional complaints against her, but also to harass her personally. Yeah. The stuff we're not talking about. I've talked to police officers who've been the targets of sovereign citizens who've had to change their addresses, change their personal information. Um, there have been cases where sovereign citizens have showed up at the homes of police officers to serve them papers. <laughs> um, right? Imagine, Nathan, can you imagine? I've, I've seen some of that stuff in court, though. It's. Uh... It's funny when they come into court and they, they've got all the red scribble all over their documents and they're trying to tell the judge how it's going to go. You're like, this isn't going to go good for you. <laughs> <laughs> that part is funny. Yeah. Not when it's at your home. No. And in one particular case, um, the, uh, the police officer, the father wasn't home and his kid answered the door, which has got to be like the worst nightmare, right? Um, there've been, so those are like the harassment levels. Um, uh, the personal harassment is something, again, we're not, we haven't been talking about. And what we really need to be starting to talk about is the violence against police officers. Look what happened at Coots. Yeah. Uh, right. It wasn't, by the way, that generated very little media attention outside of Alberta. I don't even know how much it generated in Alberta, but the weapons, made barely a, like a dent in the headlines. The fact that there have been prior episodes of violence, assaults against officers, vehicles ramming the police barrier, none of that picked up in the national um, consciousness around what was going on. 
And that stuff's happening. We've got sovereign citizens showing up to police services, trying to video you guys as you're coming and going. And my personal favorite, Romana Didulo, or whatever the hell her, Queen Romana, and her people showing up at the Peterborough Police Station to arrest all the officers. (laughs) Yeah, I think I remember seeing that in the news, but maybe like one article. Yes, but what the back, but... So, of course, what ends up happening, people are like, oh, that's hilarious. That's so funny. Now, it probably wasn't particularly funny for the police officers that were trying to come and go. And it certainly wasn't funny for the police officers that became subject officers in the, um, in the uh, complaints that were lodged with the uh, Special Investigations Unit over the arrest that took place. Yeah. That's the other part of it. Cops love to be subject officers in ongoing investigations that take months and months and years to resolve. Yeah. Well, and you know what? I, I Some of the stuff you're saying kind of gets me thinking about like Winnipeg. Uh, I have a few friends there and they have like their headquarters, for people who don't know, is right in the middle of downtown. And there's always been an issue with parking. So when people show up to go to work, sometimes they got to pl- park a few blocks away and they're just walking through downtown. and They've been in fights. They've tried to stop things that they've seen going on. Like they walk in and you come across a crime in progress and they've become involved. Um, even in Edmonton here, our headquarters, we have an insecure lot and we've found people in there doing things to members' cars. Um, we've had guys walking out of the building with somebody I went through class with. He had... Uh, um, somebody, as soon as he walked out the door of the building, was standing there wanting to fight. They're like, right, or just ready to go the second you walk out. People don't realize that. Like, nobody else goes to their job and comes out of their building and sees that. And if they did, they'd make a huge issue out of it and it'd be a whole thing. Rightfully so, but um, yeah, police deal with it on a, I want to say, not a frequent basis, but a more than frequent uh, amount than the average citizen. So, um, yeah, and the doxing. The doxing's always been an interesting one. We have so many people, especially doing the stuff that I do with the gang suppression team, we have people record us all day, every day. And I couldn't care less. But you do have to take some steps to kind of insulate yourself a little bit. It's, it's not a perfect system. If somebody wants a picture of you, they're going to get it. If they want to know where you live, it's, it's not hard to figure out where people live. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know what really police could do to maintain that um, confidentiality. Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe you have some solutions when you go through all these studies of what police can do to kind of protect themselves. Well, what I'd like to see is I'd like to see the Canadian Chiefs and the Provincial Chiefs Association stuff up and take this on as a cause. Um, here's the issue. People were in Ottawa um, with the public order units. People were complaining about the fact that they said that the, the name tags were removed. Now, I know that first there, that did happen a little bit, but it happened a little bit because people were having cameras shoved in their faces and were basically being doxxed, right? It was yeah. a legit thing. And the, the, the thing that most people don't know, I read the RCMP security brief. Um, around the doxing they people were filing foi requests to get police officers names and badge numbers 
Um, and in the in the private chat groups, they were like, fry, fry these pigs, turn them into bacon. Like there was, there was, you know, it wasn't just the harassment, it was also threats of violence. And so we need to start taking this seriously. And public policy makers have to think. Is transparency of police officer, you know, transparency, you know, you have your name, your badge yeah. number, that's public good, right? But the flip side of it is you cannot abuse the shit out of your workers. Yeah. So at the end of the day, you guys work for the government and the government as your employer needs to have some sort of responsibility to not put you in undue harm. And it's one thing like, you know, people like, oh, you got punched on the job. Ho, ho, ho. We pay you for that. Well, nobody gets paid to be harassed at their home. Yeah. Sorry. We're going to have to either way overcompensate you guys. I mean, seriously, I'm waiting for a situation in which somebody files a civil suit and says, this is just unacceptable. My working conditions have bled over into my home life. And it seems like you can't make anybody happy. So you're talking about like the name tags removed. That was done for a specific reason because people were getting names and then just going online and doxing people and showing up at homes. Um, if you wear a mask or you don't wear a mask, right? Or you had the um, the balaclava on, it's like, well, you're covering your face so people don't record your face and then go find you or use the, what is it? The I was reading through your study there, facial recognition. Um, there are some softwares out there that people, the citizens can use. Uh, but also it's just so that you don't have an expression on your face. Well, then if you do that, then people say that you're trying to hide something and you're just covering yourself because you're just there to lay a beating on them. But as soon as you show your face, now you're that female member who's getting in trouble because you laughed at something. And some of those people on the front are funny. Some of them do some funny things or say funny things, or they're just completely crazy and you're kind of laughing at them. But you, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. So it's it's a hard place to be in. I think we do need to see uh, more from the leadership on that side of things where they're sticking up for their members and saying, hey, this is why we did this, right? Being up front, there's your transparency part, but I'm still going to protect their identity and not release that type of information. So I'll give you an example. So the Grandview, um, the Grandview incident, the deputy chief there, Howard Chow from Vancouver, did a fantastic job. He got on social media right away and started slamming people who were doing this and saying, like calling attention to that this is wrong. What you're doing is wrong. Wrong. If you have a complaint, there's avenues for that and we'll deal with it. But this is unacceptable. Yes. So I'd like to see more of that. The second thing that the chiefs associations can do is they can talk to public policymakers and social media platforms. There should be a way that when doxing um, a personal information takes place, that they should be pulled immediately. There should not be some hemming and hawing from Twitter. Like it should be like this, this is verboten. Um, I'd like, I also think the police associations have a good role to play in protecting their members, which is, you know, their mandate, like to see police associations take that, take that cause up as well. Um, but it's funny, you know, you say about the balaclava that it kind of made me laugh because what people didn't maybe twig onto is, um, you guys were there. It was minus 20. Yeah. You we were actually underdressed, way underdressed <laughs> the first day we were out there. Um, but you know what? And one thing I did want to talk about too, was just, you were saying how some officers were saying what they saw on the ground was not what was being reported in the news. 
And I saw that discrepancy being out there. And I've said this before, uh, I had another member uh, on the podcast, maybe it was like a year ago now. And we were just talking about like what we saw out there and, and the difference between what you, you know, you go back to the hotel at night and then what you'd see reported on the news. And, um, you know, the news was at least portraying it as it's all right-wing extremists, white supremacists. It's, it's all white people out there. Uh, when I was down there right at ground zero, we had, I would say 50% of the population were minority groups. And if you think about who truckers are, generally there's a lot of East Indians, at least here in Alberta, uh, Middle Eastern people that drive trucks. So, and they had the flags waving and everything too from, um, I can't think of the symbol, but yeah, they had a bunch of their own flags waving and it's like, well, that never was shown on the news. So they were painting one side of it uh, and, and in a certain way that I guess they want to get a narrative across. But I just thought that dynamic was uh, very interesting uh, of, you know, some of the police, it's, and it's not to say we sympathize or don't sympathize, but it's, um, it's just interesting when you see that and you're like, I'm here just to make sure everybody gets home alive, really, at the end of the day. I'm not here taking a, one side or the other, but I, um, I wasn't a fan of the way it was kind of portrayed. So, No, um, and I heard a lot of that over the interviews. Was it um, on the ground, it was a lot more diverse. Of course, there were certain elements, there always are. There are certain elements where there was some hardcore nutbags, for lack of a better way to put it. Um, but there were, were also a lot of people that felt like that they had um, a need to express themselves. I had I actually talked to police officers, well, you know, one or two in particular that were like, you know, when this was first going on, I thought, oh, this is, this is interesting. I want to take my kids because think about this. This is the first time since the 1930s that we've seen this kind of mass mobilization of the Canadian people, right? The Canadian yeah. people are not. We're, we, we're not big on like rallying for much of anything, right? <laughs> yes. um, but so he was like, oh, this is a once in a lifetime thing. I'm going to take my kids. And then um, he ended up being deployed. <laughs> so he was like, oh, I'm not taking my kids. Um, and then when he got there, he changed his mind about what was going on. There, was a, um, there were a lot of different groups going for a lot of different reasons. And one of my favorite stories is um, the, kill, the RCMP killer horse, mm-hmm. um, which was not a, a killer and wasn't the RCMP. It was actually a Toronto mounted person. Um, and uh, the, that story, the, the victim of the killer horse was reported as being an indigenous elder. Well, when you think of far right extremist causes, you don't typically think of indigenous elders. You just don't. Yeah. Um, so, he, like, there was a lot of stuff that was just repeated gullibly in the media. Well, nobody asks, right? Nobody asks that question. Like, hey, you just said this one thing. Now you're saying this, but those two groups really don't go together. So, what what is it? But nobody asks that, and the media just kind of skates by on just putting stuff out there. Absolutely, and so the and that story appeared in the UK Daily Mail the next day, based yeah. on Twitter feed, not based on any on the ground reporting. It was literally they pulled from Twitter, and um, again, and then Fox News, of course, led with that um, and did a big seg- bunch of segments on that, and again, just pulling it straight up from Twitter or from biased sources. Now, I talked to officers that were there. 
not only was that person not killed or seriously harmed, they reappeared at the protest the next day. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And then I heard, and I, this is unconfirmed, they went to Florida for vacation. So, <laughs> <laughs> Didn't actually, wasn't that a thing where they got, didn't somebody give them a trip to there? Possibly. I'm telling you, if, if I could get a free trip, maybe not to Florida, but maybe if I could get a free trip to Fiji or Bali, I'm more than happy to be bumped by a horse. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, and even with that, like we, so in Alberta, we had the, uh, it, it was almost, I think it was every single weekend we had a form of a convoy to kind of rally up somewhere outside of Edmonton. They would drive in, do their loop, and then they were gone. Um, a few times they did stop at the ledge grounds. Uh, I think they might've stopped at a couple other spots, but generally, um, I don't recall any violence going on at those. And they came out, made their point, kept in their line and then went away. But when we had, uh, the whole BLM protest, this was quite a different dynamic where, uh, so we got deployed for this. And we're in the middle of Edmonton and, and they were expecting a couple thousand, maybe at our ledge grounds, turned into 10,000 people. And they were, you know, they were not prepared for this. But uh, as people were going, we, were, we stopped a few of them and just said like, hey, what's like, where's everybody going? Because we weren't expecting, you know, this flood of people walking. So we was asking some of the crowds like, what is this? And they were, um, these are kids that were going. So like 16 year olds. They're saying, oh yeah, our teachers uh, all canceled school and told us all to go down to this uh, rally. I was like, okay, so we have a bunch of, you know, uneducated people with no life experience in this world, just going down to listen to some people to just preach hardcore messages. And then afterwards, most of the people left, the group kind of devolved into like two or 300. And they were the ones who caused the entire issue throughout our whole downtown, marching around, blocking all the streets, jumping on cars. Uh, they were riding on car rooftops as they're going by. And we're standing there. Uh, they're basically told, like, we're not getting involved, not stopping him from doing any of this stuff. Meanwhile, all these people are going by saying, F you, giving us the finger. I'm going to, you know, kill you or whatever they want to say. Meanwhile, we're, we're there protecting their, uh, well, I wouldn't even say it's their right to do that because there were a lot of offenses being created. <laughs> but they went around and around. And by the end of it, the person leading the group who ended up smashing one of the windows on our van and, and um, doing some damage is a, a very well-known drug dealer. I don't actually even know if the guy's alive anymore, but uh, was a very well-known drug dealer in one of the areas of the city. And I'm thinking... You don't even know who this is who's leading your chants and what they're about. You're just like, you're literally being sheep, just led to the whatever this guy wants you to go to. And um, yeah, it's like he deals drugs, like an actual well known drug trafficker. He's probably killed more people in your communities than any police officer in Edmonton. So it's just, it's such backwards thinking. People are being led completely astray when it comes to a lot of these protests. And then what you see in the news is not accurate at all. So how do we get that truth back? Um, well, this is it. So basically what it, I did was I create, co-created this group called Crim Quam. And the idea was for people that are doing um, real research to talk about that research in a way that educates the public about what's going on. 
you go back to the question and you asked me about the doxing and how do we deal with stuff like that? Well, the answer is we need to do a much better job of educating the public and talk. And like, you know, it's funny. I, I used to do inner, I used to do, um, educational sessions with police officer training, I guess about evidence-based policing. And they'd always be like, how come you guys don't ever speak up? Like, why do criminologists not ever explain what's going on? And it's because we're reticent to get drawn into the politics. Many of us are reticent to get drawn into the politics of things um, because people are so volatile. And I'll tell you straight up, I have been canceled on Twitter like more than once where I've had like thousands of angry people talking about how I'm like this, that, and the other thing because of something, I, you know, because of a view I've expressed or something yeah. I did or didn't do. Um, and so that's what happens. Is that old, old expression that, you know, if good people don't speak up and that it never gets out there. I forget what the expression is, but we have to start not caring and speaking up because if we don't, then all these false narratives just, just spin. And it's on like, I'm sorry. It's, I'm watching a situation play out right now where a guy in Chicago, it turns out he faked his credentials and he was going to be given a, um, he's a, he's a crime guy with a, one of these abolitionist policies mm. and um, the mayor of Chicago was supposedly going to appoint him to be the public health director and he's going to get rid of police and yada, yada. They faked his credentials. <laughs> so he's not. Yeah, he doesn't have a PhD, and he and I think he's a resident MD and not a full MD, and he's been bullshitting for like years. And watch the response. People who politically agree with him are like, "Oh, it's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. Keep up the good fight." And then people that disagree with him are like, "You're a charlatan and you're a fraud." Yeah. And how do you break people out of? Um that natural cognitive bias that we have where we believe things that cohere with our own beliefs and values and we disbelieve counter evidence and the reality is at the end of the day all you can do is flood the marketplace with as much fact and reality as possible and hope that you might be able to change one person and i feel like debbie downer here it's like <laughs> i want to be like hey you know. Well, you know what? I think, uh, I, I, no, I think you got a, a few good points there. I want to say that it's, it, that's the whole purpose of things like this podcast and some of the other podcasts I listen to is, is people who can offer that platform for people to explain their ideas and why they're saying the things that they're saying. And for me, when I do this, it's not necessarily for me to agree or disagree with somebody. Sometimes I'll offer my opinion on that. But it's it's just to say, hey, like I think you're saying something that's of relevance or of interest to people. Come on the show and let's talk about it, rather than the screaming and shouting on Twitter, which you know everything gets drowned out on there right away. Um, and you can't put enough damn characters on there. That's why I don't use Twitter really. <laughs> so it's just annoying to use, but uh, or X, whatever it's called now. Um, yeah, no, I think you're right. It, it's how do we kind of educate people is the big issue right now and not be afraid to educate them and not be afraid to talk about things. So, you know, even just talking about these protests, 
like I did before. I know that kind of upset a few people, but it's like, you know what? It, it, you're free to explore ideas and you don't have to agree with them. And if you don't agree with them, why don't you talk to that person and try and educate them or offer the evidence or whatever it might be to try and bring them to your side, to sway them, right? That's what you're supposed to do in life. Um, uh, on that, uh, just because I don't want to keep you forever, we're just going over an hour, but uh, yeah, I wanted to ask about like the authoring process because you do a lot of papers. Um, you had a book as well, uh, Wicked Problems of Police Reform in Canada. Yeah, I have a few books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got a few projects on the go. You're, you're very busy. Um, but what, you know, what's, uh, how long do these things take to kind of put into a format that people are, are kind of able to consume? So it's like a, a study or a paper, like, do you look for like something in six months or is it like year long projects? No, I just, it varies. And, um, here's the thing. It's like, how long have you been a police officer? 12 years. Okay. So 12 years. So you think about what you were like in year one versus year 12, right? Yeah. I'm pretty sure you can get shit done much faster now than you did yeah. back in the day. Yeah. yeah. So it's the same thing for me. Um, I write very quickly. Once I understand what I'm going to do, I write very quickly. So in one month, I cranked out five papers, but I already had the ideas. So it was easy to sit down and do that. Um, but I had been collecting data for the, like the past year. And so because I do grounded research, like I'm, I like collect my own data or I collect or I work with other people that are collecting data. I'm constantly looking at and getting ideas and generating. Um, I want to write this book. I want to write that. Like the oral history on the convoy protests, I knew right as soon as I got that email or that message saying it doesn't look like this on the ground. I'm like, I want to do an oral history. And the reason for doing an oral history rather than writing a book is um, an oral history gives police officers the opportunity to use their own words in their own context to speak about something. So all I'm doing is if we're going to talk about what happened on the final day, I'm going to get use the police officer's words to, to tell that story rather than my own. And the reason for doing that is going back to your comment about educating people. One of the best ways that we can educate people is by giving them access to voices that they don't ordinarily hear. Yes. You're unusual in that you're doing a podcast, but most police officers would rather be set on fire by a deranged <laughs> clown shot out of a cannon than do any type stuff. So we don't hear your voices. Yeah. So an oral history provides that opportunity. However, that said, and I'll do a little, I'll do a little um, pitch here. For, for people to, to contact me. Um, I have 65 interviews. I could always use more uh, interviews from police officers that were involved in the protests in any way, shape, or form, whether that in Alberta or in Ontario or somewhere else. Um, because again, the, it's putting these different voices together to sort of create an overall narrative that at the end of the day, whether you hate cops or you love cops, you can be exposed to this and maybe possibly it might change your view. Yeah. Well, and like we're saying back at the beginning, you had a certain, like a very unique uh, life growing up. And I think most people would expect you to not be a fan of the police or the system or any of it. Um, but now here you are writing these papers that um, are talking about policing. So uh, 
who asks for these studies? Or does anybody come up and ask for these studies? No, no. I'm actually usually facing you guys down going, this is good for you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like your mom. I'm trying to get you to eat something good. <laughs> well, this is like, the, well, but I just wonder, because it's like, why aren't, um, I would think like the police services themselves would be saying, hey, uh, there's all these narratives coming out of the States here and it's absolutely crushing us when most of it isn't even applicable up here. We do a lot of things differently and we have a whole different history with the citizens than say the U.S. does with their people. Uh, why aren't they asking for these studies that show use of force data, race data, uh, but then more specifically like you're doing, the impacts on their members? So No, actually, a um, couple things. One, uh, uh, and you know, I'm known for being very blunt. Um, so for, first of all, um, a lot of police chiefs that don't know me or don't know a researcher are reluctant to let one in the door because, you know, what if I go to the Toronto Star and sell them out or something? Yeah. Um, I've been doing this for 20 years and most of the top, most of the police leaders in Canada, the top ones anyway, know who I am. So they know like, I'm, you know, I'm relatively trustworthy. But the flip side of that is to bring somebody like me and you have to be willing to hear the truth. Mm-hmm. And that's why I sometimes don't get invited um, because I do say the truth. I don't sugarcoat shit because it's not useful to them. I'm not like, yeah. And so um, more re- I'd say over the past few years, I've had a better time at the police associations because they recognize the value add. And so this whole oral history project really kicked off because the CPA was super supportive and invited me and to talk about it. And then that brought a lot of police officers. They were also very supportive with the Alberta project and were one of the partners to that. So I've been, while they might not chase me when I pick up the phone and call one of the police associations or message them, um, they've always been very receptive. Okay. I just think it would be really good, especially with all the talk around street checks and uh, whatever they're calling them now, officer contact reports, something like that. Um, Yeah, just some of the narratives around that. uh, Because we, as a gang suppression team, we write a lot of street checks and they are not what the media is putting out there. Like they are not even close. And uh, sometimes the self-proclaimed experts on these things don't kind of lack the humility to say like, I actually don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't comment on that, but CBC likes to find their ex- experts. So um, yeah, I want to make sure we kind of give time at the end here just for you to say how people can follow you and your work. I think people should be checking these things out and reading some of these papers because they're very interesting. So where can people find you? Thank you. Well, you can find, I have a website, lhuey.net. So net. Um, I'm also as a prolific Twitterer, Twittery, Twittery, Xer. I'm an Xer now. I'm at uh, Dr. Laura Huey. And um, by the way, nobody ever calls me Dr. Huey. Everybody calls me Laura or occasionally Doc. Um, but I do put the doctor in there because there's always some dude that wants to mansplain some crap to me that he didn't know nothing about. So, you know, I have to little be <laughs> defensive like that. Um, and also on LinkedIn, as you know, because I, we connect through LinkedIn. Um, yeah. And then, uh, you can always email me lhuey at uwo.ca. Um, 
a lot of times people, like I said, if you're interested in participating in any of this research, I strongly encourage you to get in touch with me. You just want to read my stuff and you don't want to be a research subject, check out my website. And um, there's also a research gate where a lot of my papers are stored. So there's different, and also there's papers on my website as well. So, and if you can't find something that you want to read, send me an email. Awesome. I'll put all the links up uh, when I get the episode up as well. Um, but yeah, there's so much to talk about. Um, so I'll definitely look to have you on again because I think we have a great dynamic here and we get through a lot of stuff. So I want to say thanks for coming on and hang on the line for two seconds. And uh, yeah, we'll end it there. Thank you.